0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and my co-host Thomas Fry was not able to make it, so it's a solo episode this time. Uh, Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact-futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. And I will also mention in a personal note that, as many of you know, there have been mass layoffs across the economy, and I was the victim of one such round of layoffs. So if you know anyone who is hiring for machine learning or for communications roles, please reach out to me at the same address, futuratipodcast.com slash contact-futurati. I'd love to talk about any opportunities that are available. I just wrapped a fascinating conversation with Margot Pais, Margot is a physicist and climate scientist who spends a lot of time thinking about the intersection of energy infrastructure, Bitcoin mining, and environmental issues. I first encountered her work during an interview with uh, with Peter McCormick, and ever after, I followed her on Twitter. Uh, she comes from a very different place politically and philosophically, but I nevertheless think she's incredibly incisive and incredibly intelligent. And so this was a conversation exploring some of the ways she applies her, her, her technical background and her visions for the future towards questions about Bitcoin mining. And the development of blockchain technologies more generally. Uh, It it was a fascinating conversation. I I really hope that you like it. It was very reminiscent of the conversation we had with Troy Cross, who thinks in a similar sort of vein. And in general, I think that there is this very exciting movement within Bitcoin towards thinking more seriously about the ways in which uh, a variable demand uh, source like Bitcoin mining could power the development of new sorts of renewable energy infrastructure. So all of that is is incredibly enlivening and i hope that you you enjoy the interview with margot pais tonight we're joined by margot pais Margot is a physicist and climate scientist who is currently finishing up a PhD at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Her interests and professional work lie at the intersection of economics, cryptocurrency, and energy. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Margo, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's if uh, let's I hear. A little... Sound okay? <laughs> no, no, you you sound great. Oh, you sound great. Let's let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I'm Margo. I'm a physicist and a PhD candidate at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where I do research in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department. I mostly work on issues related to climate change and water resources. So my research is a statistical based model and trying to finish that up. And then with regard to Bitcoin, I'm a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute and I do research and outreach, or I guess, education around Bitcoin mining, energy and the environment. So really my work at the Bitcoin Policy Institute is just an extension of everything else that I do because uh, I pretty much reoriented my entire life around trying to do something positive with respect to the climate crisis, so that's what I do.
0: Well, that's actually a great place to start. So I was wondering if we could begin with a brief sketch uh, from your perspective as a physicist on the question of climate change. Uh, I certainly don't need to be convinced that climate change is a real thing. I, I'm less sold on two other related claims that I was hoping you could weigh in on. One is that it's it's this fast crisis that's kind of barreling towards us. And the other is that this it will require a top to bottom rethink of energy infrastructure. Um, I, I'm less sold on those two things. So if you want to briefly adumbrate the case for that, I'd appreciate it.
1: Oh, okay, no uh, no big deal, no pressure. <laughs> so uh yeah, I mean, of course it's it's ex- it's an issue that is accelerating because our emissions are also accelerating. And if you just look at the trajectory of our emissions, our CO2 emissions, you can easily see that it's been fairly exponential over the last half of the 20th century. So, i think that alone is enough to give us concern in terms of the severity and the risks that are there i mean i don't really know what else to say about that other than you can just look at the ipcc report and you you can easily see that there's been enough studies just based off of the parts per million of the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere, looking back at the paleoclimate record, you can see that if we do surpass a certain amount of warming, like going past 1.5 degrees Celsius, and even we've already gone past one degree Celsius of global warming, that the effects are something that humanity has never experienced before. So if you're okay with that amount of risk and uncertainty in terms of what we're capable of adapting to and what species in general are capable of adapting to, then maybe it's not a concern to you. But I think to most rational people on this planet who have, who, who understand what's going on, it's not really a risk that's worth taking. Uh, we do need a, a complete overhaul of our energy systems. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the cause of the climate of climate change is that we are using fossil fuels. Fossil fuels were very beneficial to the development of society. There's no doubt that there is a direct connection between energy use and the ability for us to sustain uh, a human system or the human species at the levels that we exist today. So. You know, these aren't things that we can take that we should take for granted or take lightly in what we're doing. But we don't yet have the technology or the means to deal with the wide scale emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere. So uh, it doesn't make any sense for us to continue to delay that by staying on a path of fossil fuels only, knowing that the risks are very great. So. You can play Russian roulette, but uh, I don't. I don't think it's a good idea to do that with eight billion lives.
0: How do you see the renewable infrastructure interfacing with the fossil fuel infrastructure? Are you a, a net zero person? Do you, do you think that that renewable resources will be able to completely supplant fossil fuels altogether? What, what's that transition look like?
1: Well, you know, it's I. I'm a big believer in diversity. <laughs> And that goes that it extends to energy. So I don't necessarily think that we should only use solar and wind. I think that solar and wind are very important right now, especially because they are the cheapest energy sources that we can use in this transition. Obviously, we're going to need a lot of storage. There's challenges there in term, it, including price, but the the cost of storage is decreasing, but also All around, there's material resource concerns as well, but of course there's material resource concerns around fossil fuels. It's not an infinite resource either. Uh, We also should incorporate as much geothermal as we possibly can. Uh, We should incorporate uh, biofuels, I think, especially creating a more circular approach to our economic and social Ecological system, and I think it's really a fantastic idea to bring that on within our fuels because we can then create carbon neutral, at least carbon neutral fuels in that regard. So I think that's necessary as well. And of course, I don't throw I don't keep nuclear off the table. I think nuclear is really important. And um, I think it's really unfortunate that earlier generations, in their best, they, they thought they were doing what was best at the time, given the Cold War and the fact that they grew up. With the fear of of, you know nuclear holocaust you know i i totally get that but we really have a a phenomenal energy source there and uh i think that we really need to find a way to improve that especially on the costs side the investment side because i i think without nuclear this is a lot harder to do and it's unfortunate that we probably won't have new significant amounts of nuclear power until after 2030 and everything that is happening right now with the energy transition is all too late we waited too long and that is the tragedy of what we're dealing with right now so when the un when people talk about at the un cop about loss and damages this is what they're talking about but yeah, I mean, I think we need to get off fossil fuels as soon as possible, but of course, in a just, as just way as possible. And we cannot hurt people in that process either. So it's a very delicate situation, and not everybody is totally understanding of the delicacy of what's, what we have at hand and the precarity of the situation.
0: I'm curious as to why you think there won't be any major new nuclear power sources until 2030. Is that just regulation, or, or it just takes a long time to break soil on those things? What, what where did that uh, come from?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's what I've it's what I've been reading, you know, in terms of what people's expectations are. Even you know the the net zero models, the pathways, don't have a high percentage of nuclear in in them. So, they're the budgeting is a problem with you know there's a couple of reactors here in Georgia that are being developed and their, their their budgets have ballooned and that is that is a problem also we're starting to see new small modular reactors but they're, they're barely just the very first one is coming online and that's new scale which is really cool I've, I've actually spoken with somebody who works there and it's very very cool very exciting and i really like how they're very conscious about the water use you know so I think that's really great. But I, I, I think that nuclear for too long has been a boogeyman and, and it's, there's just been, you know, yeah, whether it's regulation, whether it's politics, you know, I think all of that has really made it difficult for nuclear to expand. But I think, you know, I think the tide is turning. I think a lot of people who understand the, the crisis that we're in, in terms of the energy transition. Realized, I know, you know, we need to rethink this. At minimum, let's not turn off our existing nuclear fleets. Let's,
0: yeah, let's, you yep. know,
1: get them back in order.
0: And with Nord Stream two having just gone down, it's it's looking like closing all those uh, yeah was even worse than it looked uh, a couple of weeks back.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, these pipelines—they're a danger to the environment, you know, because you've got to. You've got to move them from one location to another location and there's a chance that of, of a leak or a spill and we've seen that over time we've seen you know the axon Valdez and the I think that was in the eight or the 80s the late 70s mm-hmm. right that horific oil spill the BP oil spill in the early 2000s now we've got the pipelines that leak you know people in Mexico they still they actually like open up valves and pipelines and steal oil or whatever uh out of them, right? You know, there's a lot of points of failure when you're when you're having to do that. And the nice thing about nuclear is that it, you know, for the most part, it's fairly location agnostic. You can find a good place to put it. Um and you you don't have to worry about these long distances. And aside from moving uranium around, you know, that's that's really about it but you know the yeah the nord stream thing is just really really sad and you know that's an ecological uh, environmental harm that's going on there
0: yeah just just bad all the way around uh this question occurred to me it's never occurred to me before but as you were talking it occurred to me so if if we try to supplant fossil fuels with green energy infrastructure that's huge investment in new technologies it's building out a whole alternative way of uh creating and provisioning energy and if we stay on the path of fossil fuel use that will also require investments in technology to mitigate the harmful effects of climate change be better cooling better insulation what have you what what's your what's your argument for thinking that the former is a more uh super bowl challenge than the latter why i think that it would be easier or better to build out all those renewable energy technologies and infrastructure as opposed to just saying well, we're gonna do better air conditioners or we're gonna move people further inland. Uh, and they're, they're both pretty major challenges. It's not obvious to me that the fossil fuel path is actually less likely to succeed or harder to accomplish.
1: So you're talking about adaptation, uh, like a forced retreat from shorelines that there might be. Yes. Right, yeah, we have to do both. That's the reality. That's why I say it's a tragedy because we're really too late. And so there's already damages built in and people will have to move there will be forced retreats that's that's undeniable so you have you have to do both you're going to have to have some type of carbon capture storage direct air capture carbon sequestration all of these are on the table it's not one or the other it's both it's mitigation and adaptation
0: Okay, okay. So let's talk a little bit about how Bitcoin figures into that. Um, For most of the history of Bitcoin, mining has been decried as as this energy sink and this waste of resources that's just exacerbating the problems with climate change. Why think that it has anything at all to contribute to a a cleaner, greener future?
1: Yeah, well, I think that, right? That's a very, uh, very counterintuitive idea for most people to think that something that uses a lot of energy can be beneficial. But... Actually, uh, historically, energy intensive loans have been useful for building out grids and they provide demand where it's not necessarily there, especially in areas that are have not been developed. So that's a really, really useful thing. Uh, I think Bitcoin mining is really like a data center. It's best to think of it like a data center, like a unique uh, form of the general type, in the sense that it's highly flexible, it's location agnostic, all you need is an internet connection. And the hardware, if you can get it, um, you can turn it on and off within seconds, which is really powerful, especially when it's on an electrical grid with a high penetration of wind and solar, as we're seeing in ERCOT. It's also great for a in that sense, for an electrical grid that's in a transition from a conventional type of of supply side management of power, so I think that uh, we're if you don't realize what the energy transition means, uh, then it's not going to make any sense to see that Bitcoin mining could be useful. But you know, there's there's Problems around wind and solar, and that's uh, this like self-cannibalization effect, particular with with solar because it's so cheap and really easy to build out. Is that you know eventually right? The idea is we want to put on as much solar as we can, right? We don't want to see uh, a solar plant built out and then come offline because it, it cannot compete revenue, right? Right. So, but the problem is is that they're competing with each other. they're they're pushing prices down, the cost of what they're producing, they don't have to pay for energy supply, the sun is free, the wind is free, when it's there. And uh, that is a problem for their bottom line. And this is ultimately still a capitalist society. And the bottom line is, is profit and more than anything, a return on investment, right. And the thing with the other thing with uh, solar and wind is that it's an upfront investment. So you pay upfront, everything rather like with you know like a coal plant you're going to you pay as you go right you're going to buy the fuel you, you build the infrastructure you're going to buy the fuel over time so you kind of spread out that cost but with wind and solar it's all up front so how do you make up for that investment risk if you let's say you model that you know i expected x amount of curtailment and then the grid operator says actually now that you're here we have to cont- you have to curtail a lot more. So that means you're going to make less money, and that means that you're not going to be able to make that return on your investments that you promised over Y amount of years, right? So you need a way to balance that out. And if you read it all through the literature on solar valley deflation or this cannibalization effect, you'll see that demand response is one of the solutions that they mention and that is what bitcoin mining can do is this demand response and uh, lancium for example is has figured out how to manage a data center of bitcoin miners and turn them on and off and and ramp them up and down within seconds you know it's and this is the first time that that has that any load is able to operate like that and it's because of, as i said these key characteristics the unique properties of this particular kind of data center that is industrial scale bitcoin mining right so so yeah it's it can be really useful in that regard it can also be really useful in terms of helping as a co-located data center with an existing renewable energy plant so instead of, so being behind the meter rather than being you know in front of the meter tied into the grid like what lanceum does right you could have it behind the meter co-located and then in that case you know you you can balance that revenue on that side yeah. so you could put this into your revenue model and you're like okay uh 10 maybe 20 percent of what i'm producing is going to go to the bitcoin mining facility so that's going to be a, a revenue stream there and then the remaining is going to go to the electrical grid and then of course and this is something that people don't quite realize and uh, when we talk about this is that right now the low hanging fruit for that is in fact that the miners will be pulling from the electrical grid when there is not there isn't enough power from the renewable energy plant so this this is how they do they'll they'll do that, especially if they're using the new mining equipment. But of course, this is the low hanging fruit. And the most important thing here is that you're making the that power plant pencil out, right, you're making it a revenue positive. And, And that is the most important thing is that you want to be able to keep those power plants alive. And it may be the case that down the line, transmission will be built out or congestion relief happens whatever and those miners may not be important anymore look that's fine the network deals with that that's our problem but for the sake of the electrical grid this is a net benefit in that regard and i think people also don't really realize that aspect when they talk about it they're like oh yeah but you know why are they just gonna, you know, you know what? We don't need them because we just need to build out the transmission lines. Like, okay, well, why haven't you built out the transmission line? Why? What? What is? What is stopping you? Why is there congestion there to begin with? You know, so it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not that we're saying like do this instead of instead of doing that. You know, it's like, hey, look, you want you want this power, okay? You want this additionality? Well, here's a way. Let's get it up. We don't have to worry about that chicken versus the egg problem and you can have best of both worlds, these miners will go on to find a new energy source because the demand is going to be, it's going to raise the prices anyway over time. So it's not going to be, you know, very low, very cheap power after a while. It's not going to be negative price power. So that's a that's a problem for the network. It's not a problem for the grid or for the energy transition itself. So those are two, you know, uh grid scale useful aspects of Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then the other side, because I mentioned biofuels, biofuels, is that Bitcoin mining can help us build out the infrastructure to even have these biofuels, right? And we're already seeing that. We're seeing starting to see this happen in a couple of places. And and in fact, you know, the one of the first people I learned who was doing this, it's Ricardo Carmona, who's based out of Mexico and he's still bio mining and he mines with pig waste and the reason why he did it was because you know he wanted to hook up to electrical grid and provide biofuel uh, and the regulations were too complicated so it was just easier for him he wanted to still build out this infrastructure it was just easier for him to make it possible with revenue from bitcoin mining down the line you know it might be things might be easier maybe the regulations may, are more tolerable, I don't know. And maybe he'll be able to, you know, supply that biofuel to the electrical grid if, if that if it comes to it, right? So that's possible. But but in the US, we actually have an interesting project going on, which is with Best Bean Energy. And they're going to be, you know, building out this infrastructure that doesn't exist at landfills, doing it to, Jumpstarting that uh, with Bitcoin mining, and over time, you know, that infrastructure can then be used for a network of EV charging stations. And I think that that's something that they're thinking about doing. So that's really cool. That's really helpful because you know you need investment to build all of this stuff out. And People who who think, don't you know don't understand. I think it's like, oh yeah, we just say we want it and we get it. It doesn't work that way. Our economy doesn't work that way. It would be nice, but that's not how it is. So we have to be clever. We have to find ways to 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 work around that reality. And also uh, another way that Bitcoin mining has been good, or has actually been good for the energy transition. This is happening in the global south and South Africa. Uh, that's with the the Sun Exchange. So here it's actually not Bitcoin mining itself, but it's it's Bitcoin, the network, the the monetary value of Bitcoin. So the Sun Exchange, the guy who founded the Sun Exchange, his name's Abe Cambridge. He moved to South Africa in 2014, and when he got there, there were no solar panels. There there was no renewable energy anywhere in, in the country. And south Africa provides like a third of the power for a number of countries in the region, in, in south, in that you know southern part of Africa. And he had he already had experience running an energy company, a solar energy company in the UK. So he got this idea. He understood Bitcoin. He understood the uh, the energy sector and the renewable energy sector, and he put the two together. He said he needed uh, money that was as as divisible as possible. If you can't really do that with, with fiat currency, and then I can only go down to a penny. He need he wanted to go to fractions of pennies, right? And so the only way you could do that was with Bitcoin and go down to the Satoshi. So so people basically crowd crowdsourcing investment into solar projects in the community in South Africa. Like let's say a solar project for a school, you know uh and people are buying fractions of the amount of power that they need and that's so they own this fraction right and they get a Mm -hmm. dividend from basically the sun exchange sort of being like the the middle the marketplace that connects it so it takes a share of the profit and then it gives it back to the investors and they get they get paid in bitcoin so people who are participating in this tend to leave their bitcoin on the exchange and then, you know, a couple of years later they go back and they see, oh wow, you know, my Bitcoin dividends are worth a lot more than when I than, than what was there the last I looked. And then they they go and they reinvest it and they buy more solar panels. So you're you are able to build out and incentivize solar in the global south, which is struggling to get over that investment hurdle. It's hard for the region to get the money that they need to make these investments, despite the fact that the African continent is an ideal place for a lot of renewable energy, solar, wind, hydro, geothermal. Right? They've got it, but they don't really have our fossil fuels. There's only a few places on the continent that do. So this is much better for them. For especially if you're thinking about energy independence, this is much better for them, and they've got you know good mineral resources, and so this is a really great way for them to get over that investment valley and get more more renewable energy, bring up their the their lifestyle, and uh, bring it back, bring it up to something that is comparable to the West, and that is so that's you know that requires more energy. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't be seen as a bad thing. They need it and they deserve it. So yeah, Bitcoin can do a lot of really cool things in terms of helping with the energy transition there. Obviously there's been some people involved in mining in the mining industry who are not so, have not been so considerate of what is going on, but I think that they're feeling the heat they're feeling the pressure and they have to change or else they're going to cause themselves a lot of problems and if you're going to be a public company you really have to you really have to you know be serious about this sort of thing I mean you're basically accepting that you're going to be play the the state you know the game of the state and the regulations if that's what you're going to do so you really can't have it both ways I think if that's the way you're going to operate.
0: Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. That's all fascinating. I I had never heard of Sun Exchange. I'd never heard of Bitcoin mining with uh, pig waste. I think that's really fascinating. How how sensitive are these things to price changes? And I I feel like I asked Troy that too. I should should probably already know the answer to that, but no problem. if it craters to three grand again or 1700 again at which point i will sell everything to, to buy some like <laughs> i know <laughs> it seems like it seems like it could still be orphaned right so if, if we're in the midst of trying to use bitcoin mining to effectively subsidize through variable demand loads some project in the the middle of the wyoming wilderness that's an ideal spot for geothermal but nobody's been able to get over that investment valley and then bitcoin tanks you still have some of the same problems right so is that an ongoing concern are people selling insurance for that kind of thing how are they dealing with that
1: yeah so it depends on the cost of your energy source right for one thing i think miners actually who are on the electrical grid are the one at the greatest risk in terms of being wiped out Um, but i think that's also why a lot of them are, are starting to do demand response because that's a hedge against that risk also for example like riot they you know the energy markets are really complicated and I'm still trying to fully understand them but you can have these contracts that to hedge your risk on your electricity price and if it works out you know you you actually end up making more from not mining during a certain period of time which is what happened with riot. So you can hedge your risk within the mark energy market itself, uh, and then you know it, you know if you're if you're mining with landfill waste, uh, or you own your energy. Your situation, I think, is a little bit different. Your risk is a little lower, but you can still hedge that. And I believe in talking with some miners, I, I think some of them, not only do they use you know market um, market level. Hedging within the energy market, but they also use the futures market to hedge on the price of Bitcoin itself. So they they do try to find ways around that, or to de-risk, you know, on that side. And when uh, a, a mining company that's working as with uh, an energy developer, they do talk to them about that and try to give them tools for hedging that risk. And they do calculate, you know. What is the lowest price that Bitcoin can go based off of my operation uh, before I start bleeding? So they do have a sense. I mean, it is a risk, of course. I, I think, though, you know, the, the price of Bitcoin has fallen considerably. But mm-hmm. it, it did, uh, you know, it did take out a few operations, probably took out some S9s, so made the network overall more energy efficient. Uh, But the the hash rate has not really, you know, we haven't really seen a massive collapse, despite that. So, you know, I don't think that the risks are as high as people think they are, especially I think if you're building during, you know, during a bear market, I think, you know, you're getting better prices on equipment as well. So, yeah, you really have to You really have the plan around all of these risks, but uh, I think when you're dealing with very, very low electricity prices, like if you're using waste energy, it's it's a little bit easier to manage.
0: Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Fantastic. I I assume there was some sort of contractual mechanism that protected Mm -hmm. the downside risk a little bit. I'm I'm glad to hear people have been thinking about that. So in the vein of gigantic economic changes, you've come out in favor of degrowth on medium, but you've said that it's a a horrible name because it makes people feel as though they're going to be poorer every year. So if that's not what degrowth means, like what does it mean?
1: Yeah, you know, they use this word degrowth and it actually, it's an English translation of a term, the award in French, which I think is like decrescence, something like that. And, you know, I think they were really being cheeky when they came up with this, because it was really just to be provocative and, and say, you know, we're not going for economic growth, we're going to degrowth. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it does, it does sound bad. It sounds like, oh, we're really contracting and people are going to suffer. I think overall, does you know there there's two ways in which degrowth could happen. Before I actually go into it, um, one way is a forced degrowth, and that one will probably be painful. And you know you've probably heard things in the news like oh deindustrialization, deglobalization. You're starting to hear these things coming up, and they they don't sound great because they're not. And this is this is a type of degrowth. And it's not a pleasant degrowth, and that's the kind of degrowth that's going to happen because we didn't consciously make choices to, and you know, to reduce our consumption, to slow down our 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 economic system, to reduce uh, uh, you know, this endless consumer accumulation of products that we don't need. Um, you know. Uh, the the drive for companies to constantly grow to get to make more money year after year the, the existing financial economic system of that is inflationary and that is based off of debt creation you know, credit creation some like ninety five percent of all of our money is is created and that that has the tag of of interest and interest is when you're chasing interest you need more real dollars and you need more real uh, environmental resources right so all of that is only sustainable up to a certain degree before that compound interest comes back and bites you and (laughs) and your system really struggles and we're seeing now we're seeing sovereign debt crisis happening uh, in the west and i think that's a sign that we've probably pushed the system too far so that's a forced and really ugly degrowth but you can have a degrowth in which people basically just stop playing, stop participating in this unstable, unsustainable economic system, where you have smaller communities, and I think that's going to be really important, you know we I think we're going in that path anyway, but you need more localization I think of society and economic systems. You know, having global corporations that that are competing against mom and pop is not so great, so you need we, we need a way to get back to that and um, we need a slower lifestyle too, I think, and one that uh, requires in some ways less energy consumption, but mostly in the West and it's not like, you know, it's not like uh, we're just going to cut out all energy and we're going to, you know, have very uncomfortable lifestyles. No, I mean, if you think about like the amount of accumulation in terms of goods and services that we have, a lot of it isn't necessary. No, we get a lot of cheap products from China that we don't need that we throw away and there was a time in American society where products were really good. Like you built, you could buy a, a vacuum cleaner and it would last you a long time, you know, decades. I remember my grandparents 1960s vacuum cleaner, she was still using it in the 90s. I mean, that's quality. I don't see that with the, you know, the Black and Decker that I have in my closet. I don't see that happening so there was a time when we didn't have built-in ops lessons in our products we were using very cheap materials and i think we have to go back to an appreciation of some things have to some things are expensive for a reason and everything being cheap and free is not necessarily a good thing right and we have to bring up our you know of course we have to bring up the everybody's living to a certain degree so that they can also afford that. But I think we've, we've gone too far down the everything's cheap and and worthless, you know, and you can, it doesn't matter because it's cheap, just throw it away kind of mentality. So these are all like psychological societal things that we have to reorient and, and find a new value in, in in the way we operate as a society and get back to a different way of thinking Indeed, growth, they talk a lot about complementary currencies, complementary currencies are great for keeping uh, investment and and money circulating within the local economy. And that's also really important if you're going to have, if you're going to have more of a return to localism. So, you know, that's, that's going to be real, that would be really helpful. They also talk about Reducing the work week, reducing work hours or having timeshare. So people basically the idea is like you will actually have more free time. You know, you'll have more time to spend with your family. And all of these, I think, are really good ideas. And I think that they're all really possible. Uh, but getting the existing system, getting policymakers, getting corporations, getting everyone who is invested in the existing system on board with this type of pol- these po- type of policy shifts that are needed, I think is really difficult. And I think that a lot of people in the degrowth movement, uh, don't really are maybe not willing to admit that. And uh, and so I tend to lean more on to we're going to have the ugly degrowth over the nice degrowth, where everybody comes together and is like, Yeah, let's just, you know, let's go back to the, you know, that old way of living where you know we had good products and we built everything here in the US and and I think and and I just don't see that happening without a real crisis first. So yeah, I think degrowth though is really aligned in a lot of ways with the bitcoin ethos of low time preference. So if you if you're familiar with that, if even like some of the ideas that Jeff Booth has around that, you know, uh, the the uh, you know, things can be more accessible if you didn't have an inflationary currency. I, I think I think all of that is possible but yeah getting to that point without without, a, without an economic crisis first I think is, is really hard It's really hard to, to envision happening.
0: Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at FuturatiPodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Well, that's all very cheerful uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry
1: i'm yeah i'm not so cheerful on that but the idea is cheerful the idea is cheerful so i like to write about it and i like to explore it because i, I you know it gives me a little bit of hope but if we're thinking about these things now and we start and we start thinking about how we want the future to be and how we can rebuild things if we can't you know fast enough exit the existing system into a into a different one you know at least we have some blueprints there for what to do and and how to do it
0: okay so as we're closing out here the last question comes from a bitcoin reading group that i'm a part of and i told them i would be interviewing you and asked them what questions they wanted me to ask you and the only one they asked was how do you put together such savage takedowns on twitter
1: oh uh, (laughs) i don't know i don't know i mean your guess, calm demeanor
0: belies the the fighting spirit i guess you have
1: oh yeah i mean i'm not a confrontational person but i get pushed sometimes <laughs> past my limit and then i go i just like go, <laughs> and i'm a whole different person i guess but i really i hate being confrontational but i i feel it's for a good cause so yeah i i am i'm a little bit of a troublemaker in disguise
0: yeah i I can see that yeah you have a tendency to get drawn into these flame wars somehow and and uh are sniping people left and right
1: yeah i say something and you know not everybody agrees with what i say and it's on all sides but no it's okay it's okay i uh you know and i can't let people get to me so i have to (laughs) i have to be de- snarky and i used to be a really snarky kid so i guess that's where it came from
0: so so that's the future my, my daughter has has de- she's developing a real attitude um and mm-hmm. so I, I guess i guess i have this to look forward to as she grows up and like just be fighting with her flame wars around the dinner table for the rest of my life
1: yeah it was a call i was called a smart ass <laughs> I, um when i I studied in England for about eight months, and the English pe- the English people, the British told me the British students they said, "You're the most sarcastic person I've ever met," and I thought, "Really?" And then they then they stopped inviting me to their parties. So oh no! <laughs> I guess I was too sarcastic. No more tea time. That's okay. That's okay. I used to I hung out with somebody from Colombia after that. She was pretty cool. So she so yeah you know it's okay it's okay I I, so I I learned to tone it down so i guess it's like if you know when to use it use it and then the rest of the time just be really like low key calm <laughs> don't say anything uh type person and it really shocks people
0: it's good shock
1: you. value it's good <laughs>
0: so where should we I send know. people if they want to learn more about your work or follow these projects you got going on
1: yeah, if they want more snark <laughs> and more takedowns, I guess, follow me on Twitter at Jin urso. Uh, so it's Jin urso, Jin underscore U-R-S-O, named after the character from Rogue One, um, the main character. Uh, and then I write my more professional work is at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And then my more deep thinking, just putting it out there, ideas, stuff is on Medium yeah
0: well excellent thanks so much uh we really appreciate your time and your valuable perspective and i wish you the best of luck in everything in the future (laughs) thanks a lot thanks for the interview this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suiteradio.com